Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm coming to you today from my home near Blaine Lake, Saskatchewan on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. And I have with me today Jennifer Brady, who is a registered dietitian and a assistant professor at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia, Chibuktuk Mi'kma'ki. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So Jennifer, just to start us off, can you just tell us a, a little bit about yourself, who you are and, and what you do, and maybe a bit about the journey that led you to where you are today? Oh, sure. Um, so I am a dietitian, as you mentioned, and an assistant professor at Mount St. Vincent University. Um, So I teach in a program that primarily trains people who want to become dietitians. Um, My research and my teaching in broad strokes includes um, uh, my interests in health professions roles in social justice. So I'm interested in specifically dietitians and what role they should or could play in social justice issues, including sustainability, but others as well that I think intertwine with sustainability. Um, So that's my sort of uh, primary bread and butter, how I got here. I do some other things as well that I think are actually related to this. So um, I'm very involved in basic income and advocacy for basic income. Um, I do that not necessarily in my work uh, role, but I definitely draw connections between the work I do as a health professional, as an educator, and um, doing advocacy around uh, issues like that. Uh, So anti-poverty or uh, addressing poverty, for example. How I got here is a bit of a long and winding story because I have many, many years of education, but I'll just maybe sum that up by saying I... uh, completed a degree in women's studies many years ago. Um, And then uh, for job reasons, uh, meaning I couldn't get a job, I went back and I always loved food and nutrition and I always loved science as well. I, uh, that took me back to school after years of traveling um, to become a dietitian. And I definitely by the end of my dietetics undergrad, my food and nutrition undergrad, I had a, sense that what the role for me wasn't in dietetic practice, but it was in thinking about how to combine the stuff I had learned in women's studies, which was all, all of it was focused on equity and social justice issues. Um, You know, every class was focused on those types of things, of course, primarily gender and sexism, but, you know, this was the mid nineties we were steeped in thinking about intersectionality, which is really only a word that's come into public consciousness, uh, you know, in the last couple of years with Black Lives Matter and things like that. So um, anyway, we we were thinking about that decades ago 
And I took that into nutrition, but discovered actually that in the field of food and nutrition and dietetics, there wasn't really a conversation happening um, around those things. I think that's changed. I think it's changed over the last 10 years. Um, I think there's still a long way to go. But anyway, I, I, from after graduating my nutrition degree, I was interested in how do these two things fit together? Um, because they, they didn't seem to, but I had a sense that they should be fitted. Like, like someone needed to work on fitting these things together. And then I was really fortunate to find a few folks who were trying to fit those things together. Um, and so, uh, includes people like Jackie Jingra and Lucy Aframore, who are both, uh, Jackie was a dietitian. Lucy still is a dietitian that were looking at social justice issues in the context of food and nutrition and dietetic practice. Um, and then sit along the way, I've met other people like Liesl Carlson and Roxanne who are specifically looking at sustainability as part of, you know, dietetics space or something that is related to food and nutrition. Yeah. You said lots of things that are, are, are really, really interesting. <laughs> and I'm excited to, to dive into a little bit more. Um, but when you, so when you think of, of the term sustainability, and, and I know we spoke about this, uh, before we started recording, but, um, we, we are definitely wanting this podcast to be sort of a, a working definition and also a broadening definition of the term sustainability to ensure that mm. it isn't just something that's thought of, of from the from the environmental context, but that intersectionality within the work that we do being so critical. So I'm wondering if you can chat a bit about, you know, how when you think about the term sustainability, um, you know, how would you describe that or, or what does it mean? How, how, what is the, you know, definition, your working definition of that term? Um, mm. And then how do you sort of integrate that in an intersectional way into, into your work? Mm. Oh, there's so many things. Um, so I think <laughs> I would agree with you that, you know, on the public agenda um, and among people who work in, in the space of sustainability. So people doing research in that area or doing advocacy in that area, the focus is often on environmental impacts um, and our in like individual behavior change around our interactions with the environment. So whether that be, you know, um, food waste or, um, you know, how, like how much fuel, what fuel and how much fuel we're using, what do we purchase as consumers? And so I think there's sort of a double edged sword there in that there's the focus on environment, uh, like the ecology, the, the, the natural environment when people say sustainability, but I think it often, um, in, and sort of implied in that as well as is uh, the focus on individual behavior change as the way to uh, to make change, uh, to correct the lack of sustainability in terms of you know fuel, the fuel, fossil fuel use, or or in my world more specifically around the food system, uh, because that's speaks more. I don't know a lot about the energy sector and you know fossil fuels. I know probably what everyone else knows uh, if you read the newspaper, but my, my work is more on, on food and food systems uh, or my, my understanding. So I think uh, I, I have two concerns with that framing of sustainability. Um, I think it definitely needs to be expanded beyond just an environmental focus, because of course 
the benefits and burdens of climate change, not so much the benefits, but the, the burdens of climate change and the benefits of correcting that or trying to be more sustainable are not shared equally across different populations in society. So we know that environmental racism is a thing. Uh, you know, poor communities, racialized communities uh, tend to live with the consequences of climate change and a um, unsustainable food system in very different and much more burdensome ways than, you know, more wealthy or white communities. So um, in order to understand sustainability as an issue, as a social issue, not just an environmental issue, we need to understand that it's interconnected with things like racism, with things like white supremacy, with things like sexism, um, settler colonialism, um, so for me, sustainability has to has to be broadened. Um, and then, you know, I, I would I would even say, too, that the people doing sustainability. So when I I I guess, again, I'm speaking from the perspective of someone who understands or comes at that issue primarily from food and food systems. Um, I would say that in that space, there's all, also a predominance of white people, or at least white voices in white leadership, um, and, and settlers as well. So I think that in understanding the issue or framing the issue itself, it needs to broaden, but also the voices who are framing the issue need to broaden. So, um, you know, I when I think about um, the people who are kind of engaged and involved in those things, um, it really does matter who's engaged and, and involved because, of course, the, their worldview is shaped by who they are. Uh, that's true for all of us. Um, so when you have predominantly, just as an example, white settlers uh, leading the conversations around sustainability, that's a problem because it uh, results, I think, in uh, then certain um, directions and limitations in our imagination of then what is needed to correct it. And I think that's kind of where this idea of individual behavior change also comes from. So in my mind, sustainability, the conversation around sustainability needs to broaden beyond the environment, but also needs to broaden beyond the individual behavior change interventions. So for example, it can't just be about us gardening yeah. <laughs> and growing our own food, which I see a lot of, you know, people sort of supporting and I garden, I, you know, I grow my own vegetables and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think we need to be really clear that that's inaccessible to a lot of people for so many different reasons. Um, and uh, it, so it can't be about those individual changes. It needs to be mm -hmm. social and structural changes um, that address uh, the systemic reasons why climate change is uh, a, a wicked problem, but then also how it intersects with other systemic problems like systemic racism. So to mm -hmm. me, it's, you know, sustainability is a social justice issue that I think is interconnected with other social justice issues. Mm -hmm. And I hope mm -hmm. that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Thank you for that. Um, and, and absolutely in what you're saying there too, I think it's, it's very easy for, for the white settler voices of sustainability to focus on the individual actions because it allows the system 
that ultimately benefits those communities to continue to operate while causing harm to the communities that are wanting to dismantle it. And therefore, those voices aren't the ones that we're hearing at the forefront of the sustainability movement, because that would cause harm to a system that's upholding this level of, of, of systemic problem, right? So, um, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so I'm so glad that that that's the conversation that that you're having and and bringing up in your work. And I think, and it's it's one of those things that I think for sure has shifted. And I've even seen, you know, within my friend group or social group of folks who who work in the environmental field um, have have taken almost a 180 degree turn in terms of how they they approach their work. Um, and I think there's there's still lots of learnings that need to happen and, and still lots of changes that need to happen. But um, it, it's definitely not something that that can be ignored in the way that it has been for for so long. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we had a we had a guest on the podcast. Uh, this was a number of episodes ago now, um, but we talked a bit about this this idea that um, you know allowing the the solution to be in this the concept of individual action um, also continues to perpetuate the environmental inequalities that that are a part of this much larger um, systemic inequality that we're all a part of. And so the idea that, you know, it's, it's you as an individual who can make the change um, really puts the burden on, on individuals who are, again, don't have the accessibility to, to do those things. So, Mm. yeah, I'm, 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 (laughs) thank you for, for sharing that and, and for broadening the definition in that way. I think it's, it's, it's really important. So, yeah. Yeah. And I would add to, I, you know, just to that point of the problems with individual behavior change, I think on one level, there's the issue of, you know, that isn't what's really going to create change. Um, And so if we actually want to see change, it needs to be at a policy level. Um, to address systems. And I would just add to that too. I think when we, when we are so focused on individual behavior change, the other, the other consequence of that is that it ends up creating a sort of cultural capital around making the right choice. So that like, for example, you know, you have name any company name any corporation and they are selling products that, you know, like greenwashing products. Well, the people who can buy those things are people with, you know, financial access to be buying these green greenwash products or paying more for them. And so then it creates a like a moralistic aspect in a in a sort of cultural um well Bourdieu uses this concept of cultural capital. It's like economic capital, but the resources mm-hmm. is cultural power, cultural wealth. Um Borges is a, a critical theorist. Um, anyway, so this idea of cultural capital is that you have then people who can take advantage or be seen to be good people. If the priority is individual behavior change and they have access to that individual behavior change because they can, you know, they can buy electric cars, they can afford to buy hybrid or electric cars or like um, Teslas or whatever. Well, that accrues a certain amount of cultural wealth or cultural capital to it. So um, you know, then it creates, it perpetuates that systemic inequity uh, 
in, and then continuing or like perpetuating it into even the sustainability, like who, who can act in ways that are considered to be more sustainable or be making the right choices. So it doubles down ultimately on inequities, uh, which ultimately are only going to perpetuate, you know, the climate change, the consequence, you know, when you can buy environmentally friendly jeans at H&M or or whatever, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's not actually going to change anything and really just only perpetuates these other inequities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I, just this week, I had a personal conversation with, with a friend of mine about this because she, I, I was, we were having a car, we were on the phone and I was talking to her, Oh, I'm just moving my plants outside. Um, Cause I'm hardening them off to get in the garden. And, and she lives in a, in a small apartment in Saskatoon. Um, you know, she's, she's been struggling and, and, you know, her, her financial situation, she's in a super small space and that's what she's mm. able to live in. It's, and, and that's how it is. And she, she said that, you know, Oh, I can't wait. Like, you know, um, something around sustainability. I can't wait to be in a, in a different, like a home with a backyard so I can grow food and these types of things. And all of a sudden in, in my brain too, I I had this conversation with her about, okay, well, like gardening is great, but, um, a larger home and a larger yard because you want to grow a small garden box or small garden of vegetables every summer. Like if that, if that brings you joy and that's your goal and that's what you want to do, that's different. But if you're thinking about that purely from a sustainability perspective or, or an environmental footprint perspective, I said, you could go your whole life and never grow a vegetable and, and have a smaller footprint living in your tiny apartment than owning a, a large home with a large backyard. And so, um, yeah. again, but, but she's often caught up in these conversations around, um, within her peer group as well around like, Oh, I need to, you know, buy these perfect, uh, resealable bags and buy this and buy that. And that's what it means to be, focused on sustainability. So um, yeah, anyways, I just think it's, it's obviously from a systemic perspective, but even individuals having to work so hard to get to some level of goodness or, or, or sustainability focus that that really isn't, isn't true to what change is is needed on a, on a larger scale. So, yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, so just shifting shifting gears a, a little bit, Jennifer, I'm, I'm curious about, um, so you sort of shared, you know, kind of your, your educational pathway, um, but I'm curious on sort of a, a personal and, and um, level, sort of, can you pinpoint a time in your life, like, you know, maybe it was as a younger person, where did your interest or your passion in these areas come from? Like, can you think of a time or something that happened, or maybe it's a series of things, but what led you down this path of, of being so passionate about, about these issues? Um, so when you say these issues, are you talking about sustainability in specifically, or I'm talking about sustainability, but your definition of sustainability. So if you, if you want to broaden Mm. that to, to sort of the larger context of social justice, um, yeah, I'd just be curious to hear of about that sort of personal journey for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I think like for a lot of people, um, a connection to these issues comes from your just lived experience, you know, as a as a 
feminist researcher and educator, I think that's always where our first learning comes from is just our, the way we experience the world. And so I think for those of us who have experience of the world where we're on the burdened end of inequities, it enables you to see inequity, like it enables you to see things through that lens. Now, I don't think that is necessarily, um, you know, if you experience inequity in one way that you necessarily have a sense of, or are, are equipped to understand inequities, you know, I'm a woman, but I'm also a white settler. So, you know, for sure, um, have had to learn or unlearn a lot and still have, I mean, I'm sure there's still lots of unlearning that I need to do um, and learning that I need to do as a white settler. But I think, I guess my entry into those things was, you know, experiencing sexism as a girl and as a woman, you know, I, I think all women and girls experience those things, whether it be comments or, or physical violence or, um, you know, just being told you can't do things. Uh, and I guess that took me into women's studies and that's where I, my eyes were open a lot about, um, you know, other systemic inequities and how I brought that into sustainability. I'm not sure if I could pinpoint that, you know, like, um, when I, through it wasn't through formal education i can tell you that because in my women's studies degree i mean we talked about globalization and uh you know i learned a lot about the um sort of impacts on of uh of some environmental issues actually on women's communities specifically farming um with uh uh like globalization of the food system and the impact that it had on 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 women primarily um, and then in my nutrition degree, certainly we didn't learn about sustainability at all, like not at all in any way, shape or form. Um, so I don't know how that, I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I wish I could tell you it. I think it's just a matter of learning from other people, but I don't know exactly when or where that started with respect to sustainability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's there's no need to have an answer for that. I think that's, it's important to, <laughs> yes, to sort of, no worries. I think it's important for folks to see and hear too, that there's, um, there isn't necessarily, uh, you know, a degree you take that leads you down this particular no, path. Yeah. Like, um, and I think that's something on this podcast, for sure, a lot of the, the guests that we've had, with us um, have talked a lot about that, 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 you know, yes, their, their formal education was valuable and and it was important to them. um, But all these other forms of education are really where they started Mm. to bring in this, this larger, more real and tangible context. So um, Mm. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I guess if I think about it, you know, I do remember as a kid in elementary school, you know, with the rise or at least, so this is in the nineties, like the early nineties, um, we got taught a lot about in, like environment. It wasn't called sustainability at that time. It was, you know, it was being environmentally friendly is what is the language that people would have used. And so it was like, you know, don't bring disposable 
plastic kind of thing or try to buy products that are not wrapped, like that have less wrap wrapping or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So it was still very much focused on like waste, consumer waste and consumer choices. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that still, I think is pervasive, as we've said in movements around sustainability, but I think that there was also a very different framing of it. I think there's more social justice framing around sustainability now than there used to be. So I guess that's maybe where I first learned about sustainability is in that way as a, as a kid being told, you know, try not to bring juice boxes to school, I guess. But, um, you know, I think that's a different framing. So if you're, if you're wondering about how I learned or came to the framing I have today, maybe that helped informed it, form it, but it certainly wasn't as fulsome of, of a way that I understand sustainability now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's interesting. You, you sort of talked about the, the childhood aspect too. That's, that's, um, for sure for me, that's kind of where my interest and passion in the area of environment and sustainability started, but most definitely was a very bare bones understanding, um, of the issue and also a bare bones understanding of, of, the solution side of it too. So, um, yeah. yeah, but I think it's, it's interesting to sort of look back on, on some of those moments and how they, well, how you've evolved from that point and then sort of how they've shaped, shaped your life in some ways. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, Jennifer, I, these topics and, and in conversations and, and even with other folks that I've had on, on the podcast, um, you know, we talk about a, a lot of this stuff can be, can be, you know, can be heavy and, and can be hard to, to, um, be, be on and be available to learn through. Um, I'm curious in, in, in your work and in your life. So, you know, how, how do you sort of keep, keep your energy levels up and keep inspired to, to, you know, continue to do this, this good work. I know sometimes myself, um, you know, I can get really bogged down in how challenging all these, you know, wicked, wicked problems can be. So I'm just curious, um, you know, how you, how you stay, stay energized and and motivated to continue doing the work. Um, you know, I think I have a couple answers to that. One is just I think my natural pigheadedness, <laughs> like I think my natural stubborn, persistent, when I choose a thing, you're not going to tell me I can't do it kind of yeah. attitude to life, <laughs> which I think, you know, like any personality trait has a good and bad side to it. Um, so I think that is uh, one answer. The other answer I think is like, I get energized by my students you know, they're young and I see, I know that they're inheriting more so than I am. You know, I'm, I'm definitely older than my students. I'm not a grandma, but you know, I'm older than my students. And I do see them as like, um, just generationally we're, you know, we're in a different relationship to these problems and they're, they're going to be burdened by them more than I am or my kids, you know, like I've got a a 10 year old and a six year old, they're going to be burdened by these problems. God knows what the future is going to look like for, for my kids and for my students, you know, everything from just living in an environment that 
with, you know, all of the impacts around um, unpredictability of weather and storms, you know, like major weather events and, or even just the way it's going to impact growing food. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I can't imagine what the world's going to look like for my kids, but then also for my students. Um, and I also see my students being very worried, of course, about these things, but I think also, uh, willing to tackle them, you know, like I, I think young people are not as, um, what's the word I want to say, you know, not as frivolous as everyone thinks they are. You know, I know a lot of young people and when I say young people, we're talking about like people in their, you know, the, the, the students that I teach pe- people who for the most part are sort of in their early twenties um, or mid twenties. You know, I think that they're really attuned to these problems and unfortunately they have a choice, but to be attuned to them, I think in a lot of ways. So I, I get energized by that. I get energized by um, teaching them about advocacy and things like that. I include that in a lot of my teaching students have to do advocacy assignments or they have to write letters like they have to learn how to write uh, an advocacy letter to ask for change so I try to engage them in change making and I love I love that you know they do it and not all of them are going to go off and and be that in their professional lives or in their personal lives but uh you know I hope at least they'll you will support others in doing that um so I guess I guess just that, I mean, at the, also at the end of the day, it's just my feeling about what's right and what the world I want to live in, I guess, which Mm -hmm. maybe sounds a little Pollyanna, but uh, yeah, I just, I don't want the world to be the way that it is right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that. I think um, I've had the opportunity over the last couple of years to be a part of some scholarship interviews for for youth who are obviously in their grade 12 year um and it's interesting because the sort of the the conversations around what those young people are like in terms of the you know the the sort of popular way of talking about them maybe being not as caring or not as you know and I listen to their conversations that you know I'm not asking them questions I'm just eavesdropping in a lunchroom um and listening to the the things that they talk about that are Mm -hmm. challenge that are a challenging part of their high school experience and are challenging part of things that they're worried about and those types of things it's it's uh that's not true at all like this this common idea that these these young people don't care I mean I think about myself uh you know I was their age 12 years ago Um, And a lot of the stuff that they're talking about, I didn't have to worry about in high school. Like I wasn't there. They're so they're so deeply connected to like, you know, the impact that mental health and and social media and 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 uh, misinformation and all these types of things that are really a part of of their their world in a way that they weren't for 18 year old me. You know, I had all these teachings and and understanding and, and knowledge by the time I sort of had to come to, uh, you know, come to, to see those things happen and experience those things happen. So, yeah, that's really interesting that you brought up, you know, your students and, and how they, they inspire you. And I think a lot of the time it's, it's energizing if, if people take the time to, to sit and talk and learn from, um, the youth around us, I think they're all very, 
engaged and aware. And, and for sure, there's, there's a lot of things that they're worried about that are legitimate things that we also should be worried about, like other generations should be worried about too. So, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I think they're inheriting so much, you know, even just the violence happening in the world, like they're just inheriting so much. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of, and, and, and the awareness of it, right. Like the lots of the, the, the pain, like having to experience and witness that, and then maybe not be so sure of, of what to do with that information or how to do something differently. So um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So Jennifer, actually, that that kind of brings me to what I what I think is is maybe a good way to finish off um, our conversation. But I'm I'm curious. So often I ask people at the end of the podcast, sort of if they have any advice or, or things to share. Um, and I'm I'm wondering, based on some some of these last conversations that we've had, I'm curious, like, you know, for folks wanting to go down this path or maybe just just scratching the surface in terms of um you know sustainability as a social justice issue um and the intersectionality of these these um mm. w- wicked problems what um you know what advice would would you give to someone you know who's just kind of starting out and is feeling a bit overwhelmed um you know where where would you tell them to go or 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 what sort of path would you would you send them on I mean, yeah, I think I would say, well, I guess there's a lot of different answers to that question. I mean, I would say that it, it they feel overwhelmed because it is overwhelming. I mean, the enormity of, of sustainability or the lack of sustainability and climate change, even if we only understand it from an environmental issue, feels enormous. It feels overwhelming. And like, especially when, when you see... Um, you know, pipe more and more pipelines and more and more uh, stuff happening that's taking us in the opposite direction. It's like, how is the average person supposed to do anything to stop that or change that? And, you know, gardening in your backyard feels like a drop in the bucket, I think, when people, you know, think about it, of course. Um, So I guess I'd say that, yeah, it is overwhelming. And then when you mix in the way that climate change and sustainability and the food system and all that stuff is so intermingled with all these other enormous problems. It just feels like, yeah, you know, you want to just stick your head in the sand and I can understand uh, that. Um, I guess I'd say for people, what I would want people to do is to learn about the ways that these are intersecting issues. And I mean, in terms, in terms of that, I think, you know, um, one thing, especially for people who are just sort of coming to this, uh, I think um, Ingrid Waldron's book, which was made into a film um, called Something in the Water, was really good. Um, I think it illustrates really well the ways that, uh, like it illustrates environmental racism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say that I think we need to unpack um, for those white settlers that are that are coming into learning about this. I think we need to be super mindful and cognizant of the and reflexive about the ways that we frame the issue. Like going back to what you said, 
the desire to frame the issue as something that is just individual behavior change is a settler white supremacist idea, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and that reinforces the inequities that mm-hmm. also reinforce climate change and environmental issues. Um, so I think we need to be unlearning those things while we're, while we're learning about sustainability and our role in changing that. Um, and yeah, I guess that's what I would say, but also acknowledging that that's that's overwhelming and it's not an easy thing to do. So I guess to uh, be gentle with yourself and learning about it, I guess, but it's not going to be a gentle process. Yeah. I don't know. I wish I could say do this. (laughs) No. And I think that that's helpful too. And what you said at the end, just reminding, reminding ourselves like to be gentle with ourselves, but also understand that the process of, of unlearning, especially for those of us who, who are of a white settler background is not meant to be comfortable, um, nor, nor will it be, nor should it be. And so, um, yeah, like that, that work is, is going to be hard and it's tough. And, and so, you know, preparing ourselves for that, um, but also, you know, being engaged with, you know, scholars and thinkers um, within this space from, you know, Black, Indigenous uh, and, and people of color perspectives is is also, you know, for me, I think of those those people that I, I those voices that I look up to and listen to and, and learn from, again, doesn't mean it's a, an easy learning process, um, but there's lots out there now. Uh, there's lots of people out there. So seeking those voices and learning from those folks um, who are doing that as, as they're their life work is, is something we can be doing too. Certainly. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, awesome. certainly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for taking the time to chat yeah, with me today and, and be on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, this yeah, is a great it Sounds like a great podcast. Well, yeah, we, we, tr- we try awesome. to kind of bring a diversity of voices and, and share different perspectives. So this has been an awesome conversation and I really appreciate it. So thanks so much. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback.